The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. So, good morning. I wanted to say a few words this morning about right view, right understanding, the first of the Eightfold Path. In the Eightfold Path, there are many, many... um, (laughs) Buddhism is a kind of a list-making tradition. And um, some of those lists are presented in consecutive order for a reason, because they're developed one step builds upon the other. Some are wholly integrated. The Eightfold Path is both, really. Um, each path, each step of the Eightfold Path is sort of preparing and enabling the next step. And they're also all functioning together. And the, the very notion of a path is, I think, so important, not just because it well describes the way the practice of Buddha Dharma unfolds, but because it really helps us to see, see it in a different way that is not based in path to goal, uh, problem to fix, success and failure, gain and loss, but rather something that because when we see it that way, it's already, we're defeated already. But when we see it as a path, that's something that is always possible. We can always take another step. And we don't have to know much more than that in a certain way. You know, it's like the Buddha's teaching on the essential impulse we have to experience things in terms of pain or pleasure. And that the middle path is to avoid or not engage in either of those two habits. And we don't really need to know in advance of what what else there is, what else we will discover. If we just don't follow either of those two well-worn paths, we will find what else there is. And right view or right understanding is the first of the Eightfold Path. And Bhikkhu Bodhi said, our perspectives on the crucial issues of reality and value have a bearing that goes beyond mere theoretical convictions. They govern our attitudes, our actions, our whole orientation to existence. And that's really important. And particularly, perhaps, because views are understanding the views we have, the beliefs, the way we think things work. You know, they're so built in and integrated and um, adopted, and and all too often unexamined and unchecked and unexplored, that they're functioning all the time, but we don't know it. We don't necessarily see that that what we see, how we see it, what we do, the decisions we make are based on and are sort of an operating understanding of everything. They govern our attitudes, our actions, our whole orientation to existence. So just to reflect on how every thought, every spoken word, every action we commit 
sits on, arises from, is based on, and strengthens that view, or those views, whatever they are. And so the views are self-perpetuating, self-affirming, self-confirming, self-validating, if we let them be, if we don't examine them, if we don't question. And bodhicitta is really not necessarily the beginning of that, but it's an essential part of that, because to aspire to an enlightened life is to, in a sense, implicitly and explicitly say, I am not going to keep following the path that I've been on. I'm looking for another way, which we may not even understand yet, needs to be built or needs to not be built on this current set of views. Bhikkhu said, whether formulated or not, expressed or maintained in silence, our views have a far-reaching influence. And far-reaching not only in terms of our outreach, but in terms of others, how they influence others. So right understanding is, you know, in a sense, what begins before we even begin practice, practicing. We begin encountering some teaching, some dharma, some understanding that the those teachings are presenting us with. And so from the very beginning, they begin to provide a basis for how to begin, for what the Dharma is, for what practice might be. And that really never ends. I hope it never ends. So that view, our views, right understanding, is continually being, in a sense, born again, challenged, tested, verified, clarified, And that as we, what often happens, in a sense, maybe inevitably happens, is that as we're practicing, and we're and it's happening, it's working, and we are clarifying and beginning and seeing things more and more clearly. Our understanding is becoming more and more in accord with the Dharma, which means in accord with the nature of things. We can look back on earlier stages of our practice and what we understood and how we were practicing based on that understanding and see how it was how it was, you know, not, not as clear as it might be right now. That doesn't mean that it was wrong or invalid or completely false, but just that it was still, it, is, it was still in a state of clarification as it is in this moment, as we're looking back. And so the basic teachings and concepts and principles are all basically right understanding is helping us to understand the situation we're in. What is the situation we find ourselves in and want to free ourselves from? Bhikkhu said, Views imply an ontological commitment, a decision on the question of what is real and what is true. An ontological commitment, a commitment to being, to life, to existence. And that when the views are false, that's still true. Those views are still our commitment to our being and, and also your being. So my views that are the basis of how I am existing are the views that I project onto you. Who you are, what you are, what is true and real. I believe this. 
So, of course, a dualistic view sees things as separate and, and sort of existing in their own realms, like everything has a, its own kind of world, its object moving through space and time. It can, it can be more or less related to other things, but it doesn't have to be because it's independent. Right? That's the whole basis for things having self-existence. Is there self-existing? So things can come together, influence each other, mingle a little bit, dance a bit, or not. So here can have nothing to do with there. I can have nothing to do with you. My actions can have, are my business. But that's not how things are. That's the only problem with that. <laughs> it's just not true. <laughs> And it's not true. It's not even. It's not true just because the Buddha said it's literally, actually, every day, not what we see to be true. You don't have to be a Buddhist to know that. And so, we can look at in any direction. Consider our relationship with the earth, our views of the earth. The earth is here for to extract. It is replete with resources. Thank you, Earth, for having all these resources, for being a supermarket for us to go and take what we want, and conveniently for being a trash can, a garbage dump. So what we don't want, we just throw away. To have it limitless supply, to be a place where we can send away our waste, a thing, a, 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 an earth that is largely insentient, not a living thing, that has no real value unless it's monetized, it has no real value unless it has value to me, those are all views. They're killing us. They're killing the earth. They are an ontological commitment. So we can begin to understand why the Buddha started with right understanding. I mean, it's kind of like if you want to start, you want to learn, you want to be a, a doctor, okay, you start with open heart surgery. That day one. But it's not quite like that. And so we begin practicing with a beginning understanding. What else could we do? That is going to be conceptual, of course, right? Because that's where we start. That's the way we relate to things. That's how we begin to understand is through concepts and ideas. And to whatever degree we trust those or have faith in them or they seem true to us, we engage them. And then we practice on the basis of that. That's what we're doing. That's what happens when we begin practicing, whether we're aware of it or not. But we're not just practicing on the basis of those views. We're also, because we haven't really done anything yet to our old views, they're still there. They're still strong. They're still stronger. They're still operating. They're still the things, we have much more history with those, right? And so there, those are, and so, and what we see, a lot of the struggle that we can experience in practice is where those seem to be in conflict or they're competing, right? What do we trust? The Buddha said, I see no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as a wrong view, and no factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. No factor more important. That should get our attention. 
He says, for a person of right view, whatever bodily, verbal, and mental karma you instigate in accordance with that view, based on that view, whatever your volition, your yearning, your inclination, all of this will lead to what you are seeking, what you truly desire, and will lead you to, agree, uh, to, to be agreeable to well-being and happiness. Why? Because that view is good. And again, what's important here, because some people get, get stuck on the sense of right, right? Like, who says it's right? Well, we could say, well, the Buddha said, right? But as I often say, right here is not just, he wasn't just creating a philosophical system based on his ideas. As I often say, it's like I think of him as reporting from within. So he went and, and had intimate contact with the nature of being, the ground of being, self-nature, the true nature of things. And then he reported, okay, this is what I've seen. This is what I encountered. This is how things work in and of themselves. But we have to speak about that. We have to have a way of sort of presenting that, right? Because we start within our concepts. We start with ideas. We have to start with right understanding. So we have to sort of reach into something that is ineffable and is beyond any word through direct encounter. Thank you, Buddha, for bringing, having that enlightenment experience so that you could come forth and then bring into language and ideas ways of teaching about that, right, so that we could begin to practice. So that's what good means. That's what right means. Right means in a right, right with the world. Not right with my opinion, right with the world. Good in terms of the world, the world's goodness, the world's ontological commitment. <laughs> the Buddha says, suppose the seed of sugarcane were planted in moist soil. Whatever nutrients it takes up from the soil and water all leads to its sweet, agreeable, and delectable flavor. Why? Because the seed is good. And so too for a person of right good, right view. So because it begins in con with concepts, Buddhism speaks of a mundane or a worldly or a a um, kind of beginning right view. And so what is that? Well, the Buddha said it's to correctly understand the nature of karma, cause and effect. So let's think about that a little bit. Why, why is that sort of how we begin to formulate a, a, an idea of what right view is? Cause and effect. Bhikkhu says the right view of the ownership of our actions, which doesn't mean possessiveness. It means taking responsibility for, understanding how things work, that actions, intentional actions, lead to consequences. Those consequences become the totality, the summation of our experience of ourselves and others. Right? In a sense, in a, any kind of relationship, we're bringing together our worlds of karmic everything. When we sit on the cushion, that's what's arising. And so the Buddha said, it's to understand that we are the owners of our actions, the heirs of our actions, right? Act, our actions create legacies, right, that we are the heir to. They spring from our actions, beings, that is, spring from our actions. 
That's our experience of ourselves and other people. We are bound to our actions, for good or, for good or not good. So to take a vow is to bind oneself freely, powerfully, to a, to a strong intention, to a right understanding, as opposed to being bound to our karmic impulses, impulsive consciousness, and not understand why. Why can't I break this habit? Why can't I stop acting out of this? Even as I understand it, I can understand, I can see where it came from, I can see how it was generated, I can see what those events were that, that I experienced, I can see how I responded, I can see all of that. But it's still got power. So the Buddha said, whatever deeds we do, good or bad, of those we shall be heirs. So of course, if we want to change, if we want to shift and no longer live out of those habit energies, then we have to understand, well, how are we creating them? Because we're still creating them, right? They're still being generated. And the Buddha said, it's very important that we understand that those actions are, have, all, have moral value, right? They're affecting us. They're helping, they're not helping. They're affecting others, they're helping, they're not, they're not helping. But we have to understand that, that, you know, we have to learn how to pick up that snake, <laughs> right? So that, so that it, it, we handle it well. So we need to understand that there is, that right view rejects any notion of a nihilistic understanding of the world. That everything is empty, therefore nothing matters. Or that, from a traditional perspective, that, that this life is all there is, a kind of materialist view, and at the end of this life, that's it. And whatever karma you've created just sort of vanishes, disappears. The Buddha said that's not possible. That can't be, that can't be in a moral universe. Because that means a saint's life and a demon's life are basically in the same in the end. And we know that's not true. Also, that it can't be just subjective. You know, that, that right view means, well, whatever's right for you, whatever's right for me, who am I to say? You know, that you acting in this way is not, I mean, I wouldn't want to do it, but who am I to say that it's not, not that you shouldn't be doing it? So that kind of ethical subjectivism. And then, or seeing right understanding in terms of a hard determinism, that everything is fixed and determined. You really have no moral choice or volition. So that's that. Which means taking any kind of moral responsibility doesn't make sense, right? If you have no choice in the matter. So Buddhism has always been very, very clear about that all the way through. Why? Because these are the ways in which we can misunderstand the Dharma. And, and misperceive or misbelieve that that's what it's about, and, and then have not right understanding. Dogen spoke about having deep faith in causality, and to not have deep faith in causation makes it impossible to practice the Buddha Dharma. He said you just can't do it. Not that it won't work out well or that it'll take a long time, it's just not going to happen. You know, when we encounter those kinds of fairly unequivocal statements, like, we should take notice, right? <laughs> if we don't see the causal relationships between things, then how can we hope to shift these strongest, strongest patterns that we see within ourselves, these underlying dispositions? 
how can we cease from doing what is unskillful if we don't recognize that they're unskillful, that certain actions lead to certain consequences? And recognizing that if we don't really understand causal relationships, how can we let go of our very strong attractions, attachments, and desires when they're still very strong? And we want them. Right? It's not just because we start practicing Buddhism, okay, I've given up all my desires. Hell no. In fact, sometimes they get stronger. I mean, think about Sashin, right? When you're stuck there with yourself and you want a little relief, right? Those desires, that just that party just opens up, right? <laughs> so how do we, if we don't understand the nature of karma, and that, yes, attractive though they seem, and the pleasure that I know I'll get, you know, from that indulgence, without understanding the nature of karma, I, I, it's very unlikely that I'm going to look beyond that. and say, yes, I will get a little hit of something, but then what? And this is not the first time. I've actually gone through this a thousand million times. I know what happens next. That's incredibly powerful. You know, when you think about something that you want, right, and then you open your eyes a little, look a little further down the road, and you realize, if I, want, if I get this, I get that. And sometimes that just immediately has a cooling effect, right? Because I don't want that. And how can we have faith in practice, in those moments of practice, when we don't, um, see immediate changes, right? You're practicing your heart out, genuinely. You are doing what you understand, what you what your right understanding is has has told you to do or instructed you to do. You're having faith in that, and you're not seeing the results. Without understanding the nature of karma, it's hard to to keep doing that, right? Because we're so goal oriented. I want show me the money, right? But if we understand karma, it's okay, because we know that consequences don't always appear now. And so there's that ordinary view of right view, and then there's a transcendent or enlightened view, which the Buddha said is to really understand the Four Noble Truths. Understanding the nature of dukkha, not just that dukkha exists and we experience it and we suffer with suffering, but the nature of dukkha. So when we sit, and we sit in the presence of that, this particular moment of unhappiness or sadness or anger or restlessness, whatever it might be, and we practice even without understanding that it is itself nature or that it's empty, but we practice in accord with that truth, which if we're practicing well, that's exactly what we're doing. By not denying and by not grasping, that's the middle path, the middle path that, of, of not abiding, of not trying to create a sense or fall back into a sense of something existing in and of its own. So even if our understanding is still tethered, we're actually practicing in accord with the real nature of things. That kind of wonderful, right? To understand the basis of our thirst, our grasping, the origin of our dukkha. I sent him to you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> or her, I don't know. We didn't get that close. <laughs>
and then to understand, by understanding the nature of dukkha, by understanding the nature of thirst, cessation, nirvana, liberation. And then to understand the path, not just to practice it, but to understand the basis, the nature of right understanding, of intention, of speech, of an action, of an effort, livelihood, of of right effort, of mindfulness and concentration. Not just understand how how to practice those, but what 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 are the nature of those? And so to appreciate how, with right understanding, right, we then bring forth intentions or a desire to practice, a desire to calm our mind, desire to develop our meditation, desire to see things more clearly, desire to be more compassionate. We bring forth intentions. So right understanding becomes the basis for right thought, right intention. And then as we are developing that and establishing that, and that's becoming clear, it takes the form of speech, right? Because we give it words. That's when it becomes clear. That's a transformation from some sort of movement within us into a clarity of, oh, I seek this. I hunger for this. And so write speech. And we can talk about it with each other. We can engage it in the teachings. We can chant it. And then on the basis of that, we begin acting in accord with that. We practice. We practice on the cushion, we practice off the cushion, we do it in our relationships. We take it to work. And so that carries into our livelihood, whatever that is. And livelihood here, right, livelihood doesn't mean what you make your money at. You may not do something that makes money. It's whatever we give our effort to that is keeping your house in order, keeping the house in order. And in order to do that, we have to practice right effort. We have to know what is actually skillful, what what enables all of this to happen. What are those wholesome and unwholesome states of mind? How do I recognize and diminish and let fall away those that are not helpful and strengthen and bring forth those that are helpful? And then that feeds right into our sitting, into our mindfulness, right? Because we are now understanding the field that we're in, all those many beings that are rising, right? And which ones to listen to and follow and trust and which ones to not trust, to no longer trust. And follow. And that then helps us to strengthen into concentration and samadhi so that we begin to go beyond all of the consciousness, the conceptual aspect of this that begins to fall away. And it's just direct. And that leads into, into realization, which is transcendental right understanding. And so it's all working together. You know, I think about, we can so take it for granted, but think about the Buddha as this historical being who had this, you know, all that went into him, his leaving home and practicing and his ascetic practice and studying with other teachers who basically said, come on, you're the next, you know, you're my heir. This is your community. And giving him a new status, a new position. So he left his role as the leader of a, of a a township or city, whatever it was at that time. And now he could be a new leader of this community. And he said, no, 
I have not yet found what I'm seeking. But then when he did, when he realized enlightenment, how to speak of that? Right? So, I mean, it was, you know, he could have had this deep enlightenment, but like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to speak of it. Nothing really comes to mind. You know? <laughs> that he had that kind of mind that he could, he could report and put it into a form that we could hear and remember and that made sense and that was kind of organized and that was so exquisitely bound together. You know, it's like there are moments where a person or a gathering of people come together at a time and are able to do something that is extraordinary, right? Because of that particular person and, and their all the qualities that they have are a particular group of people that changes the world. But the question is, and this is important, is, is in developing right understanding and the clarity of that that is developing and our confidence, because that's an important part of what's developing, is we're having confidence in that, which is another name for trust and faith, so that when we have confidence in it and you really trust that, then we'll, you're going to give yourself to it. You're going to leap into that. But how do you do that without that view in your mind becoming dogmatic? Without it becoming an absolute truth, without you becoming ideological, and that clear understanding becoming poisonous. Rather than unbinding, it becomes a new form of binding. Rather than something that's liberating us, it actually begins to... to corrupt us in a sense. Rather than being the basis from which we come forth and help others, it becomes the basis by which we do just the opposite. You know, I think it, you know, when we see that happening so much in, in, in so many things, but certainly in spiritual traditions, you know, if something is really working for you and has changed your life, has transformed your life, it's easy without the proper, <laughs> you know, guardrails to just think this is, is an absolute truth and this is true for me and it should be true for everybody. And if it's not true for you, then there's something wrong with you. Because I'm on the side of right. And so how it could come out of an actual, you know, true experience or transformation of a person's life, but then without that understanding that yes, that is true and it's empty. There is no absolute, absolute truth. There is no truth that exists. Where is it? It's a construction. So when the Buddha came back and reported, he was bringing into being, creating words and ideas to speak about and create a structure for, engaging in an understanding and practices that would lead us to what he was able to find himself. And in any moment when we forget that, that every and any aspect of this is upaya, is a construction. That doesn't mean it's not powerful and valid and useful and important. In fact, I remember in the oral teachings when I was towards the end of my training, one of the things Dada Roshi said to me in, in an oral teaching was he said, look, as you continue, a lot of the things that you really relied on that were so important to you early in your training you may, you'll, you're seeing differently. You're going to see them differently. And you may feel like you don't need them in the same way. You don't rely on them in the same way. He said, but don't forget 
how important they were to you, how valuable they, how indispensable they were to you. And that is continue, will continue to be true for others. In other words, just because it's, you have a different relationship with it, right? Don't, don't, that doesn't mean that it ceases to be value, of value and have importance. So how to have deep faith and conviction without attachment. It's really, really important. The Buddha said, if anyone should put the Buddha said, if anyone should put the question to me, whether I admit any view at all, whether I hold up any view at all, he said, they should be answered thus. The enlightened one is free from any theory, for the enlightened one has understood what form is, what things are, and how they arise and they pass away. The Buddha has understood what feelings are, how they arise and pass away, how perceptions and mental formations and consciousness arise and fall away. Nothing exists intrinsically. Nothing exists in any permanent form. Nothing exists that you can hold on to and hold up and say, this is it. No such thing as that exists in the world. And he says, therefore, I say, the enlightened one has one complete deliverance through the fading away, dropping away, the liberation of all opinions and conjectures, of all inclination to the vain glory of I and mine. And he spent a huge amount of his life teaching clear, decisive teachings with conviction and confidence and was not hesitant to point out when somebody was speaking or teaching false dharma. He didn't mess around. And so there was no conflict in that in being clear and confident and, and having that as a basis that we leap into and, as the Buddha said, being free from all opinions and conjectures, liberating all opinions and conjectures. If you wish to see the truth, just hold no opinion for or against anything. It's not saying have no view. Sometimes people misunderstand. It doesn't happen so much, but in the early days, people would come in sometimes, and they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't say anything. It's like, how are you doing? Um, neither good nor bad. What's your practice? It has no fixed form. How do you feel about this? Either way is okay. <laughs> to not hold an opinion for or against. So then how do we hold it? How do we hold it? How do we act on it? How do we relate to it? To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. To set up, to establish on the basis of what I like and what I dislike. We have likes and dislikes. How do we have them? How do we understand them? How do we relate to them? When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed. This is all from the faith mind. When the mind is disturbed, something is not, there is not right understanding. Or there is right understanding, but we're not listening. We're not remembering. We're not practicing. And when we see that in others, when we see others whose minds are disturbed, 
their language, their actions, their thoughts are disturbed. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing their understanding, the basis from which they understand how things work. So how do we know if it's true or not, if it's trustworthy? Do those views bring you into, do they bring you closer to seeing things clearly? Do they open your heart? Do they calm your troubled mind? Do they open and illuminate the body and mind? Do they lead you towards karmic actions that affirm life, that recognize the dignity, the completeness of every thing? Do they dissolve the boundaries and walls? Do they lead to well-being, loving kindness, and gladness? And if all of those seem clear now, can you find any place in which those views abide? Any place in which they actually exist? Why do we do Beyond Fear of Differences work? Why do we bring our attention to these ways in which human beings, our ancestors, have been on the giving or the receiving end of of unimaginable forms of false views and the pains and confusions and violences that those have led to. Why do we have groups based on different aspects of what we call identity, color of skin, gender, sexuality? Why do we do that? Isn't that further separating? solidifying those identities. It can't be. can't be. Those are already pretty solidified. That's how we get here. Those solidifications and that separation already exist. That's how we know those views are not true. And so just as the Buddha taught that the first noble truth is life is dukkha, He went right to the place where people were. I know that you are suffering. Yes, that is true. I know that those walls exist. I know that I have been on the giving end of that. I know that I have been on the receiving end of that. Now, now, what can we do? And so to examine those views as... And, and, and bring them into accord with what is true to start where we are. The faith mind says, if you don't discriminate between coarse and fine, you won't be tempted to prejudice an opinion. Because all prejudice and opinion is based on coarse and fine. Worthy, unworthy. Deserving and undeserving. How do we know that those views are false? Because they do not bring us closer to wisdom and compassion. They do not calm the mind. They do not illuminate the body and mind. They don't lead to karmic actions that affirm life. They don't recognize the dignity of others or oneself. They don't dissolve boundaries. It's really not so complicated. We don't have to get into all kinds of theoretical, philosophical notions of good and evil, right and wrong. The Buddha said it's just 
what you see. When we really look with an unbiased mind, your natural uncontrived mind is Buddha mind. It's the mind of all beings. It's always fundamentally at rest, like the great ocean. Due to energies, habit energies, past actions, attachments, it appears in many forms, as many minds, as many beings, the waves. And so an old master would call out every day, Oh, master, yes? Are you awake? Yes. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. That is something we can bring to the world. No deception. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.